Maybe there's somebody out there that struggles with what we're talking about today and they make one phone call to somebody or they seek help or they have a child and they're wiping their tears now because their child's suffering from that. I'm here for anybody out there that may have a situation where they just need to talk because you know what? That's what got me through my tough times. All right, today's guest on the Gravity Podcast is Mark Gerling. Mark is the owner of Gerling Travel, a husband to wife of over 20 years, father to two children, Christ follower, a survivor. Mark's story starts from day one and is still being told as he lives each day. Well, Mark and I have spent some time together traveling and I've gotten to know him really well and I think you'll love the story. It's uh, pretty impressive and uh, just a story of a man who's overcome quite a bit to land in a, a pretty solid place. So uh, enjoy. All right, well, we are back on the Gravity Podcast with Mark Gerling. Mark, welcome, glad to have you on. Hey, I'm glad to be here, Brett. Thanks for uh, thinking of me to uh, join the podcast. Yeah, well, you know, we had a chance to spend some time together this summer. You were kind enough to guide us for what was a couple amazing weeks in Africa and spent a lot of time together, had three meals a day together and got to know you and hear your story. And so it's it's great to have a chance to share it with the audience. Well, I'm excited about sharing it. I think it's a, it's a healthy part of the daily grind, you know? Yep. Well, it does seem to kind of fuel the work that we're doing. And so that's the point of the podcast is to really let people see how you got to what you're up to today. So let's start at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about kind of these early days, you as a as a little kid and, and your family and, and where you're from and kind of all the important details of the first part of your life. Cool. Okay. Well, I was born and raised in in Kansas City. My dad was an airline pilot for 38 years for TWA, and my mom was a nurse slash homemaker during the child rearing years. Uh, I have an older brother, two years older, and I have a seven-year less younger sister, Anne, who uh, resides in Kansas City, and my brother's in Denver. My parents are both in Kansas City, albeit divorced, but amicable and friendly. And I think my story, Brett, really starts from day one, eight hours of, of being born, I uh, was was uh, born with a very unique uh, diaphragmatic hernia, which is a birth defect. So when I was pulled out of mom's womb, I was not breathing on my own. And this is in 1970. So technology was a little bit less back in those days. And so they basically had to transport me from the uh, birthing hospital across town to the children's hospital. They did a uh, operation on my abdomen at eight hours of age and Basically, they handed me back to my parents and said, we did the best we could, but let's not bet more than a nickel that this child survives. And those were the exact words that my mom has used with me since since that day. And I'm here, obviously, uh, made it through that uh, rough beginning into the world. And uh, I think some of the important things that, you know, that I've thought about and, and my parents and some other people I've dealt with over the years in therapy have stated that, you know, sometimes people look at the first, what, 18 months of your life as some of the most critical, nine months in the womb, the first nine months out of the womb can sh shape your lives. And my first 
nine months out of the womb were barely rocky. There wasn't a lot of nurturing. I was, my mom said you were put into a metal tin, put into an ambulance in December, cold, freezing out. You're eight hours old. You have breathing apparatus because you couldn't breathe because your lungs had collapsed. You had a hole in your diaphragm. All your guts had gone up inside your lung cavity and you were just a hot mess to an operating table. And then back to our arms and and you fought through it all. And, and in and amongst those trials and tribulations at that age, I also had a blood transfusion done because I had the wrong blood type from, I guess, my mother. So they gave me a blood transfusion. And obviously back in the 70s, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, maybe uh, care towards the blood. And I ended up with uh, hepatitis because of the bad blood. And so now I'm fighting that, uh, trying to heal and so obviously I'm still here speaking to you about it 53 years later. And so that's the start of the life for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and tell me more about, you know, obviously, you know, most of that's probably pre-verbal, been shared, passed down through your, your mom and family. But, you know, how did that kind of shape you, you know, as you remember it? Do you remember kind of or share with me, you know, what happens next that maybe led to this rocky start, this tough entry into the world that first nine months. Well, then what happens? You bring that up right out of the gate because, you know, it feels like, and just from from knowing you, you know, that that did lead to a, a rocky early childhood. It sure did. It really never stopped. I mean, my childhood, as I remember it, was always, I guess some of it was I was the middle child, I was kind of, as as I looked at it, I was already down a swing or down a strike. I never looked at, at the world uh, as a young child very happily. I was always just kind of there. I wasn't really good at anything specifically. I struggled in school from, from my kindergarten report card where the back of the report card where the teachers write on it said, Mark has a hard time paying attention for one, which was our first call sign, which we didn't even read it till I was 18 years of age. And then I had uh, serious uh, learning challenges. I, I wouldn't call them a disability, but I would definitely call them a challenge, whether it was the attention deficit disorder or any type of you know hyperactive disorder. It all played a factor. But back in those days, obviously, as we know, there wasn't a lot of therapy driven towards that side of the coin for mental health or anything related other than you're just not doing your job and you get your butt kicked you know, and you get disciplined uh, because you come home with bad grades every year and you went to summer school from fifth grade to my high school senior year. So I knew the struggle was real, but I didn't know what the struggle was coming from. I needed attention dating quickly back into like my early teen years. I had already kind of started sampling substance abuse. It was a way of attention seeking. I was hanging around other older people at a job that my parents had insisted that we had jobs at 12 years of age, which obviously in this situation for me backfired uh, big time, kind of on them and on myself, of course. So the drugs became a habit. They quickly became an addiction. The self-attention that I lacked, I went out to seek attention in very negative ways, breaking into my own home, calling the police, walking through my house with the neighbor with the 45 Colt Magnum gun pulled out. And I knew there was nobody there, but I was the one that called and I was the one that discovered something was wrong. And so the attention was on me, not my little kid sister who was just a baby, not my older brother who was a scholar, 
There was just Mark. And Mark struggled with those items big time from as far back as I can remember. Mm -hmm. uh, and then into the teen years, Brett, where mm -hmm. obviously gets interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's important to share. You know, I'm I'm happy when people can openly talk about what was going on and what led to substance abuse and this desire for attention and to really act out in a way that's so obviously about something, you know, deep rooted inside and and usually just totally unconscious. And I'm assuming for you too, I mean, especially because you started with the the kind of entry into the world, the, those that infant stage, that trauma. Then I'm wondering, you know, did you even have any sense as to why you struggled so much and, and why you needed this attention and what you were trying to soothe that was inside of you that that was unsettled, incomplete. You know, what what do you remember having any awareness around why you were doing this? Or was it just so deeply traumatic, unconscious that you you just didn't know and it kept continuing to to spiral? You know, there's definitely a level of unconsciousness I feel in my story because I came from a really good family. I had parents that loved and cared for me. There wasn't abuse in the home. There wasn't alcohol, drinking, anything to that nature. My parents worked hard. They provided a good living for us. You know, we had a nice home. We had a pool. We had, you know, we called ourselves the Beaver Cleaver family on the inside of the house. Or I'm sorry, on the outside. You can kind of, oh, the Girling family, they're all put together. But we all know that when the door closes, sometimes the family nucleus is different than what's on the outside. And we portray a church-going family, and we go to the Catholic grade schools, and you're taught to be that way on the outside. Like, oh, how's, how's it going, Mark? Oh, I'm fine. We're not taught to say, hey, Mark, how's it going? Oh, really? I'm not having a good day. I really feel like crap. I feel like putting a bullet in my head. I feel like smoking weed or shooting up a, a drug today. Uh, how's your day going? You know, it's just kind of something that you're not trained to do. I mean, we wish it was better. We wish people were more like that when it comes down to the countless hours, days, weeks, months that I spent in therapy, psychiatry, psychology, lock rehabs, foster homes, you name it. There, it was more common. How do you feel, Mark? And you express a true emotion. I feel like crap or I don't feel good today. My thing, I really think now being a, a man, a father, a, a husband, a business owner, entrepreneur, is that my self-esteem, Brett, as a child was very, very bleak. Uh, my parents were good people. They were disciplinarians. My dad did most of the discipline. It was tough. It was harsh in some ways. Back those days, maybe not looked upon as harsh, if you know what I'm saying. We got our asses kicked. It was just kind of part of it. You get in trouble, you get your ass kicked. You know, it wasn't a fist to the face, but it was a, a paddle to the bare butt on the front porch with the neighbor kid watching, you know, those are traumatic incidences that you go through. At the time, you're just like, this is freaking stupid. Why are you doing this? But you don't talk back to your father, mm -hmm. at least in the 70s, we didn't. Mm -hmm. I don't know about today's world. I think it's a little different, but we did. And you probably didn't either. Mm -hmm. But it just kind of spiraled. And, and I remember turning the drugs away. When I was 12 years old, working at this place, these older Kids, I'd classify them as losers now, of course, because they were our age working at a dog kennel with 12, 13, 14-year-old kids. And they were basically, that was their life, drinking, smoking, drugs. And I remember seeing it for the first time 
literally at 12 years of age thinking, oh my God, that, no way that I've been told that is not good. Mm -hmm. But peer pressure is a powerful thing. Mm -hmm. And when you don't feel good about yourself and somebody is trying to maybe make you feel good about yourself and then you take that stuff and you know, if you've ever, anybody listening has ever smoked a joint, let's just throw it out there. It's pretty common nowadays, but even back then or, or done anything to alter your mindset, what's it do? It makes you feel good. Mm -hmm. So you like it. All of a sudden now Mark had a way of feeling good and it was definitely not the right way to go about doing it. And I knew it even back then, Brett, I knew as the day was long that this is not something I should be doing. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying that to myself over and over and over again, but the addiction took hold. If you or anybody who's have addictive personality and you've been through something like that, you know how powerful it can be. And all of a sudden now I'm doing LSD, I'm doing hashish, I'm doing PCP, I'm 12, 13, 14 years old. The dope just doesn't cut it. You're finding laced marijuana. You're dipping it in stuff you shouldn't be to get a little bit more of a buzz. You're drinking pints of Jack Daniels, literally crack the seal, drink the whole freaking bottle in one gulp. But you know what it did for me is it gave me attention. Mm -hmm. And I definitely yearned for that. And I found I found my attention. I even got a nickname, you know, because I could drink more than some. And I was such a young kid. And you know, I believe it's just a very, it's a deep trap. It's a deep cynical barrel to be in. And I definitely was, was in it full speed. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you're in that barrel and it's deep as we sit here today. And I look at you here on the screen, healthy, vibrant, all the things you mentioned, successful family entrepreneur. How did you start to begin the process of climbing out of that barrel. What's at the bottom for starters? You know, people talk about a rock bottom. What was it for you? And then how did you start to climb out? Sure. So my rock bottom was 16 years of age. I had dropped out of school. I was living on the streets. I had developed jaundice of the liver from the drinking excessively. Uh, which was not good for me being that I had the hep and I had levels had been increased over my lifespan up to that point. And my mom was a nurse and she had asked to see me one day when I was living in a car and she knew I was drinking and drugging again. I had just came out of a 60 day rehab and, you know, 60 days. And unfortunately for a kid or even an adult, it's not long enough to really break an addiction and get the therapeutic needs that your gut needs, your soul needs in order to regurgitate the hatred, the the bad stuff, the bottom of the barrel stuff. And she saw me and she started crying. And I was like trying to hold back the tears because I was a tough guy, you know, and I was so sad and broken on the inside by then. I was like, just take me away. Just get me out of here. Put a bullet in my head. Suicide was always a contemplated thought in my mind. Attempt is one thing. It's attention seeking. You either do it or you don't. That's kind of what I was I was taught. And uh, and I think sometimes there's some truth in that because I really didn't want to die. But when my mom pointed me out and she said, dude, you're dying. Look at you. You're a mess. Your skin is turning yellow. You are in big trouble. And I'm your mother and she's bawling and crying. And I'm trying to fight the tears back as a tough guy, 16 years of age. And they had wanted me to go back to school. And I said, I'm only going to go back to school if I can go to the public school with my friends. Okay, so we met at the public school. 
uh, the counselor and them had already met behind my back. As I'm a, p- a parent now, I understand how that works. They, they, they're smarter than we are. Our kids may think they got one on us, but my parents were, were ahead of the game. And they said, well, Mark, the only way you can come to our school as an underage minor without a parent consent is if you go back to rehab. And I told my parent, they were sitting right there. And I said, I'm not going. I said, I'll just, I'll just leave now. And I did. I walked out. Both parents crying. I'm crying, trying to hold back the tears. And I, I really think that the rock bottom for me was in that two-week period where I'm on the streets. I got no life. I'm stealing to find money to buy drugs. I had no job. It was a really traumatic experience, not in school. And knowing in my heart, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. I just, I knew it. And so long story short, if I can do that, was my parents made the decision one day to come and get me off the street. I was actually getting my hair cut, you know, back in the whatever, 80s. I had long hair and I was getting it permed. We were going out that night to party and I'm paranoid as all get out because we're stealing from people. We're, we're messing with drug dealers we shouldn't be messing with. We're stealing drugs from people that we shouldn't be dealing with robbing places and homes and doing all kinds of things. And my parents came and got me off the street and they said, we're taking you away. Whether you like it or not, you can go with us willingly or we'll have a police escort with leg shackles and handcuffs. So I didn't want any of that. I agreed. We flew to Ohio, believe it or not, Cincinnati. They told me they were taking me to a foster home. And I was completely cool with that because I was so up to here with anger and hatred towards them for why, I don't know. They were just trying to love me and care for me. But you know, you're confused and you're you're a freaking mess. So long story short again, drop me off at this facility in Cincinnati, which turned out to be a long-term drug rehabilitation facility, like a lockup facility, 12 hours locked up, 12 hours you spend in a foster home. So part of it was true. And I called them, you liars, how could you lie to me? And they said, you've been lying to us for four years. All we're trying to do is help you get better. Bah, bah, bah. So it was a real blowout. Went to rehab, ended up being transferred to Texas to another rehab, same organization, but different location. Lived with 13 foster homes. And about nine months into my 20-month stint, I had legal problems. I had to be extradited back to Kansas City to take care of some legal stuff. I had to... I had to give up some evidence. I had to give up some kids, friends of mine that were stealing. That was really a difficult time. You feel really bad because you're a kid. Oh, you can't tell on somebody. You know, I could. It was either that or six years in prison. I wasn't going to go to prison if I could help it. But one day, Brett, during my rehab, it was a fifth, five-phase rehab. I was on the fourth phase, thought I was doing really well. I was clean. I was locked up, so I really couldn't do anything. But I was feeling good. And the counselor stood me up in the group and said, Mark, what's going on? You look, you look, you don't look good. And it was like, okay, I had a spiritual experience right there in that blue chair in front of 150 other kids my age, all trying to get better. And the Lord God himself came down. He grabbed me, touched me on my head, and he said, just walk with me. Just come with me. I'm here to help you just embrace me. And I still remember it like I'm sitting here talking to you today. It was real. There was a higher power that came down that gave me a chance. And from that day forward, I started to be able to regurgitate more and get the guts out and get the 
bad feelings out. And I started doing mirror therapy through the counselors, looking at myself in the mirror, just like I am and say, Mark Gerling, I love you. You're a good human being. You're a nice looking boy. You're a smart kid. You're not this, you're not that. You And so you started to retrain myself to really believe in myself and to believe I could be anything I wanted to be. And I could kick this habit and I could kick, not even more the drug habit, Brett. That was probably one of the easier things to do because for one, I was locked up. I couldn't, I didn't, it was just like, not there. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to do it. But getting rid of the low self-opinion, getting rid of the low self-esteem, getting some confidence built back up as the human being that I was created to be. Mm-hmm. And so those are all the things that I drilled down on and had a lot of help from therapy, communicating, communicate. I'm a big believer in communicating. If you barrel that stuff down, buddy, just get ready because it's coming up one way or the other. Mm-hmm. It may not be for 20 years, but it's going to come up and it's going to hurt you or somebody else. Mm-hmm. So through the rehab, it, changed me. I felt that spiritual power, connectivity reach into my gut. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've just chosen to not let it go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I think it's really important for people to hear the depths of it, just how much it can spiral. I mean, Again, you know, like you said, you know, you can have well-intended parents, loving parents, and yeah, you know, things have changed for the better. Maybe it's, it's you know, a little bit of a mixed bag, but the love was there. It was being shown in, in the ways that your parents knew how, right, which is really the way that they were probably raised and the way other people were raising their kids, you know, so it's generational, it's societal, and, and it even goes back to birth. Who knows if it goes back even before that, right? But but there you are, this kid addicted to drugs and in and out of rehabs and in the foster homes. And, and it seems almost like an impossible cycle to break. I think the experience, the spiritual experience that you had in the world of AA and, 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 you know, 12 steps, you know, there's a lot of conversation about higher power. And a lot of times, even in the spiritual world in general, people are turned off by the idea of a God or a religion, but it oftentimes really does support healing. And in your case, you had a spiritual experience that really feels like there's no other explanation for how you turn things around other than a higher power. And I just couldn't really find any other way to maybe explain that you then start to heal yourself, you know, and and with the help of therapists and with the help of others, but really, and doing a lot of the hard work. It's not like you just turn it over and it's all fixed. Mm. There's a lot of hard work that you have to do. You have to be in action in order to really get yourself out of that barrel. But that's what happened. And it's it's remarkable. It is remarkable. It really is. And I'm like, I remember going, so when I got out of the facility and finally came back to Kansas a month after I returned from being gone for over two years, thinking, okay, my family's back. I'm happy. I'm loving. I'm, we've forgiven each other for all of our sins and all of our transgressions and all the things that I did bad 
in within my family to my little sister, just mean and just cruel stuff and attention seeking. And they forgave me. They all forgave me for what I did. And I forgave them for the things that I felt like I needed forgiveness from. Because my mom and dad are just like me and you and your wife and my wife. Are we perfect? Do we know the answer? My dad, in the darkest moments of our troubles, he always used to remind me, he said, son, when you were born, there wasn't a book that came out with you that said how to raise Mark Edward Gerling. Mom and dad, we did what we thought was right. And did we make all the right choices? Obviously, we did not either. And then my dad would always say, so two weeks, a month after I came home from Texas, from being locked in this facility, 13 foster homes and all that other craziness, feeling really good, confident, sober, going to AA, going to NA, going to my sponsor who was helping me and, and, and going to the Lord and praying every day and asking for that strength, that innate strength. They call it sometimes you got to fake it till you make it. You got to have that blind faith, that white knuckle treatment, all those things I did on a daily basis. And sometimes, Brett, we have to live when things are rough, we got to live one minute at a time because that minute seems like forever and the day seemed like forever. And when I came home and I was expecting this huge, wonderful world of happiness and my family and my mom and dad split one month after I came home from rehab. And of course, I took that blame because I feel like, well, I'm the F up in the family. I'm the one that's been gone for two years. I'm the one that cost them all this restitutional monies and legal fees and courts and all the trouble that I put my family through. Now my mom and dad are, are splitting. And uh, obviously at 16 or 18 years of age, when I came home, I didn't realize that it had nothing to do with Mark that it was between a mom and a dad or a husband and a wife who happened to be my parents. But I still shouldered the guilt. And that was probably my toughest trial because I'm here I am, a newly clean kid, trying to stay sober for one, which is hard enough at 18 years of age, and then have to deal with the separation of my parents, which there's obviously a deeper story there that I don't really need to get into. But um, I'll let your minds wander. But anyway, we all know life is tough and marriage is tough and it's not easy. And anybody that says it's easy, uh, you know what? You're better than me. But I fought through it. I kept the Lord close. I kept my higher power right next to my gut. And I, we made a pact. And I said, Lord, listen, man, I am feeling so much pain right now from, from this incident. Can you just do me one thing? Can we make a pact that nobody will come between you and me when it comes to protecting my sobriety. And I'm holding my chest, me, I can't let anything, I can't let Brett Kaufman come between you and me because the pain that I could possess because of you, maybe I make you mad or my dad or my mom or my spouse or my child or a coworker or anybody in the world gets under my skin, it can, cause trouble, as we all know. And then it's, what's the first thing you want to do when you feel pain and frustration and anger and hatred is, in my case, oh, let's just get white. Let's just, let's just do it. Let's just get it all over with and numb it again. But I've been able to keep that shield right here for, I've been sober now 36 years. Mm -hmm. No drink, no drug. Uh, even when I go to the hospital and I have to have a surgery, which I've had a few of in my life, I've always told them, guys, I'm a recovering addict. I want the lowest dosage of 
anything narcotic to enter my body because I'm still scared. Yeah. I don't want that feeling. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's the one day at a time saying, and, and I imagine that, you know, even as you describe going in for a surgery and having to be afraid, you know, you, you kind of have to really take it one day at a time, one experience at a time to, to build 36 years of sobriety. You know, people, I'd recently heard somebody talking about addiction and I, I can't remember exactly the saying, but it, it's something like, you know, the, the, the problem with, uh, with recovery is that you have to do it every day. <laughs> right. That there's always going to be a challenge, a temptation, a hardship. And that instinct, even though you might not have have acted on it in 36 years, it, it's still going to pop up. And then so, you know, congratulations to you for for really fighting that fight every day. Let me let me ask you, you know, as you transitioned into this world of sobriety and and got your life back together. And as you started to, to move forward, you know, maybe, maybe you can talk a little bit about sort of the, I don't know, circumstances that lead you, start to put you on the path that landed you where you are today. I happen to know the story, but it's, I think it's pretty magical how we end up doing the work that we do. And why don't you talk a little bit about kind of how you started to build your life and how that led you to what you're doing today. Sure, sure. Happy to. Yeah. So essentially living in Kansas City up until I was about 25, my parents had now been divorced. I was searching. I was searching for an answer. I felt really good about myself. I, I didn't have, still didn't have any college, never did, never will, probably never have any college education, uh, barely got the high school degree out of the way but I had a drive and I had hope. And so I ended up, again, I think it was a spiritual calling. It was a spiritual leash that took me to South Florida. And I can tell the story about how I ended up in South Florida, but the short of it is, is I was searching for something special. I wanted to find, I was in the hospitality industry. I, I, obviously, I didn't have a whole lot of opportunities for jobs in my late teens, early 20s, other than a retail store or a restaurant. And I'm a people guy. I'm a type A. I love people. People is my therapy. Talking like this is what makes me thrive. It fuels my fire. It keeps that sobriety nice and warm and rosy and comfortable and appreciative and grateful and humble. And I knew something out there. I knew that my calling was great and I just needed to find it. And I remember in Kansas City, back when we had Borders bookstores and you could go buy a newspaper from any big city in America. So I went to the bookstore, got a Fort Lauderdale newspaper. And this is no shit, Jeff, Brett. This is the true story. I'm looking at the paper and I'm looking for something magical, something to jump out and bite me, not just Chili's restaurant in Miami Beach. That wasn't going to cut it for me. I was a fine dining waiter. I was really good at what I did behind that table. And I knew there was a special thing. So I found this ad in the paper and it's all it said was full-time, part-time, now hiring. And it said Purdue Dean Yachts. And I'm thinking, that's it. That's it. I don't know what it is, but that's the number I'm calling. I called this number. It turned out it was a marina. It was a marina, boat marina that serviced 
a private club in Key Largo, Florida called the Ocean Reef Club, which you may know of and some of your listeners may know of, especially from Ohio. There's a lot of Ohio members down there. And the guy that answered the phone, he was like, this Joe, what can I do for you? I'm like, oh, I'm just calling your ad and I'm looking for a, a job as, as a waiter or a bartender in your place. And he goes, well, I'm not a restaurant kid. He goes, I'm a marina. I'm a boat marina. Are you looking, are you a mechanic? He was confused as to why I'm calling him. But guess what? He was like, why are you calling me? And I explained to him in quick verse my story. And I said, Joe, I'm looking for something special. And he goes, well, you know what? I service this really private club marina with a bunch of home, home basically like he said, a bunch of rich people. And he goes, I think they have a couple of restaurants. He goes, why don't you give them a call and see what you can find? I'm like, oh, okay, great. So I turned around. I looked up Ocean Reef Club. Couldn't find a whole lot about it. I'm like, hmm, I wonder what this place is all about. So I called the local gas station in Key Largo. I just looked up a gas station in Key Largo and I said, hey, can you tell me what the Ocean Reef Club is? And the attendant on the other line said, oh, private club, very wealthy, never been there. And I said to myself, that's where I'm going. So I pursued it, I pursued it, I called, I drove all the way down there from Kansas to do a face-to-face -face interview with the sales or the food and beverage manager because I wanted a job there. And three months later, they, they hired me. And I drove myself back down there in my little Honda CRX with just me in a bag, I had no place to live, but I had a job. And that's where the story really started to gain track. And I got this job as a waiter and I'm waiting on all these really wealthy businessmen and women and from all over the country. And uh, I started to learn and listen to these people. And I started to think, hmm, maybe there is something out there for me. And, mm. and you know, the story goes on and on and on. But, you know, you could say, okay, flash forward from 1995 to 2024, here we are. And I think the thing that I can leave you with, the most powerful portion of my story was that, God gave me two ears and one mouth because he knows I like to talk. And my mentors always used to tell me, Mark, you talk too much. You need to listen more. Mm. So I started to take that to heart and I started to listen and listen and listen. And, you know, the dominoes just kept falling and falling. And I kept getting a new opportunity to prove myself because I didn't have any college and nobody wanted to hire me. And Slowly but surely, I started to get an opportunity to, to say, okay, Mark, here, cold call this book and give me some business. And, and I cold called that book and I got the guy a, a piece of business from what I was doing. And then he hired me and and then it just kind of evolved from there to here. Um, mm -hmm. There's a little little in between there, but mm -hmm. we have yeah. to pay for all that. Well, yeah, no, well, let's, let's jump to, you know, where you're at today because you guided us through Africa which is, I think, your specialty. Although I know you are working with us and many others with travel around the world, you know? Yes. And so may maybe, I don't even know if today you would say Africa, how much the Africa travel is really makes up your business. I know you're, you're really worldwide now, but, but talk a little bit about how you ended up, one, discovering and specializing in Africa and two, you know, the, the, the leap from getting in the hospitality business, from, you know, learning the business to becoming the business owner, to becoming an entrepreneur. 
Yeah. So when I left Ocean Reef Club in 19 or in 2001, I had been, I was a sales manager at the club calling on corporations in Ohio to Kansas, Missouri, Illinois, you name Midwest was my market. I called on big companies. I got their uh, CEO meetings and their executive meetings to come to the reef and do their, you know, fun in the sun is what we call play golf, talk about your businesses, have good dinners, good drinks, go fishing, play golf. That was my job for about eight years. My wife, Shayla, who you have not met yet, I don't believe. Yeah. No, uh, one day you will. Mm-hmm. So we met through the hospitality industry. And then we were together at the end of my career in Ocean Reef Club in Key Largo. We, she and I started a business called Girling Sports Motorsports Travel. So we focused on doing contract work for the motorsports industry because we had a racetrack right outside of Key Largo in Homestead. And I had a few clients on my list that I helped take care of during the races. And long story short there is I said, hey, there's a there's an opportunity, I think, for us to become like a third party planner for these race teams because they're all small, monpa owned, all, mostly out of Charlotte, North Carolina and good people. But like the girl in the office does the secretary work. She does the bookkeeping. She does the hotels. She does the flight. She does the car. She does everything. And so we came in and partnered up with these companies, these big race teams, and started a business just kind of out of a hope, women, a prayer. And I had a few contacts that got me in the door, which is a big part of anything in this world, as we know. And that started our initial company, Girling Sports Travel, your motorsports travel specialist. So we worked that together. Well, she kind of did most of the work, but I was her voice and she was the back of the house and did the contracts and all the emails and whatever. Uh, It was a perfect match for us because I'm an A and she's not an A. She's an introvert. And then that ended up just leading into other avenues and sports travel. And before you know it, my wife, she's going to the Super Bowl doing groups. She's going to the Masters doing groups. BCS Final Four, BCS Championship Football, Ryder Cup, President's Cup, you name it. She's going to all these events as a meeting planner for companies that hired her. And all that was, Brett, was the power of referrals, the power of doing a good job, getting your name out there. And then the referrals just started to spread like wildfire for her. And, you know, here she is a 23, 24 year old kid still, and she's already grossing a company that's doing two, $3 million a year. Mm thinking, whoa, you're doing great, girl. Good job. (laughs) And so when the 2008 market crashed, I told her, we were in Florida now, we're up in Palm Coast where we live now and, and have been for the last 20 years almost. I was like, you know what? I'm done with the corporate world. I said, I'm gonna do my own thing. I'm gonna open up Curling Travel and I'm gonna focus and specialize in what I really, really want to do, which is Africa. Mm-hmm. to start. And I had been to Africa in 1996 for a month traveling with, at the time, my girlfriend who I had met through the hospitality world. And she had gone to the Peace Corps and we stayed in touch via pen pal and did videos to each other, our, our recordings, uh, voice recordings and mailed the cassettes across the world and took six weeks to get there and six weeks to come back. But <laughs> It's a great love story, and, and it really set the foundation for my life when it comes to the love of the African continent. And, you know, that came and went, and our life is just a nice, it was a good good experience, but it, it passed. 
And um, I said to myself, I am going to find a way to make Africa a part of my life because I loved it. I fell in love with it. Touching the soil changed me from day one. It still changes me. I've been there now 26 times myself alone, just with clients like you and other families that you are, you know, friends of yours and other people from around the globe. And uh, it's a special, special, special place. And so I just started to specialize in learning the East African world, Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda, and combining those trips and doing, I did four years of research before I ever booked a single client because I really wanted to know what I was doing and what am I getting people into. It's a fairly expensive adventure. It's a life-changing journey. It's truly what it says it is. It does change your life. And I'm all about life change. My life changed for the better. And being able to see other clients of mine's faces light up and the change that they sense, the humility that we take with us when we leave Africa to brew. How much did you appreciate coming home? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I loved coming home, but it was really um, just what you just said, you know, the humility and the simplicity and the kindness, the generosity, the understanding of the history. I mean, seeing the the animals in their natural habitat and how the locals engage with them. I mean, you, you can't not but be moved and and have you know a life-changing experience i don't think i can't imagine not really having some sort of shift after having that experience and and, and i'm assuming you know that's why africa i'm always excited when i hear somebody who turns their passion into their business this is kind of the thing that i am most passionate about is the idea that you can use your entire life your entire life and all the experience, especially the professional experience, to then bundle it all up, see the value in all of it, and apply it to something you're super passionate about in your work, right? Which ultimately, if you do all of that, you know, is in service of other people. And so, you know, when I hear your story, that's exactly what it sounds like. It sounds like, you develop such a gratitude for living. You put your your life challenge, your your faith that saved you. You put it to work by going out and working hard, right? You found something that that was from an education standpoint. It taught you. It taught you an industry, but but then you took all of that and said, "I'm going to Africa." Right. Cause that's where, places. That's funny. You know, right. I'm, but you know, when, when you get there and you experience it, you can see why you might want to focus your life around that. And my first 30 days in Africa, it's so funny. It's ironic actually. So when I went to visit my friend who was in the Western part of the continent in a country called Mali, which is the size of Texas and California combined in the really in the sub-Saharan Sahara desert region, it was 110, 120 degrees there. We lived third world living. She was a Peace Corps volunteer. So they're not, you know, they're not living high on the hog. And, you know, we traveled by public bus with 15 people stuffed in the back of a pickup truck with pigs and goats and chickens up on top, defecating all over you. It's just 120 degrees out. Spent the first 30 days there having dysentery every day. I mean, it was horrible from that perspective, mm -hmm. but what it did 
was it gave me such a sense of gratitude. And like you said, humility is a powerful, powerful thing. And if you can embrace it and you can deal with a little adversity and you can take that back and realize, wow, that was truly awesome. Mm. And it did forever change me. And But I knew I wasn't going to be going back to that area. I wanted to go deeper into the country where I could maybe you know, see the wildlife, which is what people think of when we think of Africa, but also to think of the cultural side of things and being able to combine culture like the Maasai or the Samburus or some of the tribes that we can turn people onto when they're there, like we did with y'all, just to get a glimpse of how they really, truly live. Mm. It's it's phenomenal. And, mm. and it is so moving and powerful. And I have yet to meet somebody that's gone on one of my trips or for that most anybody that's ever gone to Africa that's gone on a safari or whatever, that doesn't come back and say it was probably the best trip of our lives. Yeah. Because yeah. it's that moving, you know. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's a good point to highlight. I mean, you know, your initial experience wasn't glamping and, and staying, you know, with, in yeah. farm to table restaurants. And right. you know, we were hardly roughing it with you, you know, but uh, <laughs> it's one of those things, you know, I think, you know, people who haven't experienced it, you know, might have some ideas of what it's like. And, you know, I had, you know, dear friends who had traveled with you who told me what it was like, who told me it was amazing, but you, you can't really truly get it until you get there, till you see the sun come up, till you see the sunset, till you look out and you see the animals in the distance. I mean, you know, to you. Or that 500 pound silverback that's 20 feet from you. <laughs> right, right. You know, right. You, can't or put a you, price tag on that. you can't put a price tag on that. You just yeah. can't. Yeah. And, 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 and probably even more than all of that, you know, having dinner with one of the locals, you know, and just kind of hearing what life is like. And it's awesome. And you're awesome. Your story's awesome, Mark. You know, I really I'm glad to know you and to have spent some time with you. And, you know, hopefully we'll do that again. But uh, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your journey with our audience. And we'll make sure people can uh, figure out how to find you if they're interested in, in using your services. But yeah, any final thoughts, anything you want to share with the audience before we wrap up? Uh I just think of the circle of life. I sit here and think, where did my journey start? Just with meeting guys like you. I think about where did I start? You know, and I dated all back to one guy who, you know, who my other client is, who I met through another client that I took to Africa years ago and the power of just people. I mean, you think about it, Brett, here we are on your podcast and it just blows me away to think that Two years ago, we didn't know each other existed, other than maybe you from hearing from your friends that I, I had taken before. But the power of people, the power of good work, power of hard work pays off. And I'm blessed beyond measure. And, you know, my wife always tells me, she goes, you settle for yourself. Why do you settle? And I said, well, honey, I'm just I'm just blessed to still be alive for one. She goes, but you are alive, Mark. You did. You've made it. You've done well. You've conquered those demons. Give yourself a little pat on the back once in a while. And that's hard for me to do. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's hard for a lot of people to do that are entrepreneurial or has just a touch of success, you know, I never, ever 
uh, I want to use that word over and over. And I want to use it too much because I know how quick things can change. Look at what COVID did to my industry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Took it away from me in a split second. But no, so it's it's a blessing to be able to share my story. I haven't done it for a while. And uh, I know the rest of my day, I'm going to feel like I'm on cloud nine. And and that, that natural drug that we get mm-hmm. from sharing and talking mm-hmm. a bit and letting maybe a few people that are out there here. And maybe there's somebody out there that struggles with what we're talking about today. And they make one phone call to somebody or they seek help or they have a child and they're wiping their tears now because their child's suffering from that. I'm here for anybody out there that may have a situation where they just need to talk because you know what? That's what got me through my tough times is talking through it. And I don't know a stranger, as you know, Brett, I love everybody. I'd give my left shoe to anybody that needed it in this entire world. And um, I just believe in the power of people. And and this has been a, a great experience for me. And I really appreciate you and your friendship and your family. And so thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. And, and I think, you know, that is the, the reason that I do this is you, you never know who's listening and who might really need to hear it and who might get something out of it and how people connect as a result. You're right. It is about human connection, about sharing. You know, we're all going through this experience called life. We're really more the same than we are different if you really strip it down. So I I have no doubt your story will will mean something, you know, to many and uh, keep sharing and, and um, yeah, good to be with you as always, Mark. Sir. All right. Well, tell the family I said hello and uh, look forward to seeing you in person when that time comes. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.